Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of the Development Studies Institute here at LSE, and it's a great pleasure tonight to welcome you to the school and to tonight's talk by Professor Pranab Barden on the economic rise of China and India. I can just start with a, a few formalities. Uh, please, can I ask you first to make sure that you've turned off your mobile phones uh, and chargers? Also, Pranab will speak for about 55 minutes, and then we'll be taking questions, taking questions singularly tonight. I also want to be very polite and say rather formally uh, that Pranab Barden is Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He was chief editor of the Journal of Development Economics from 1985 to 2003, and was co-chair of the MacArthur Foundation-funded network on the effects of inequality on economic performance uh, from 1996 to 2007. He held the distinguished Fulbright Siena Chair at the University of Siena in Italy, 2008-9, and this year and next, very happily, uh, he's the BP Centennial Professor at the London School of Economics. Now, that is to be very formal, Pranab. Uh, I'm especially delighted that Pranab is here, and not just because he's in my own institute, Destin, although that's very nice for us. Um, I'm a huge fan of Pranab's work, both in the field of development economics and on the political economy of India. I think it's fair to say that anybody who considers themselves to be a serious student of India will be familiar, very familiar with Pranab's book from 1984, The Political Economy of Development in India, a book that's been updated at least once since that time. It's a book that combines rigorous economics uh, with informed political analysis, and I think it remains a model of its type. Pranab has also published in 1999 a graduate-level textbook on development microeconomics uh, with Christopher Udry, micro not macro this time, and in 2003 Blackwell and OUP published two collections of his selected essays, one entitled International Trade, Growth and Development, and the other, Poverty, Agrarian Structure and Political Economy in India. And I think it's that breadth of expertise, Pranab, that is really a key to your standing in the field. Pranab combines excellence in development macroeconomics and microeconomics. It also has a strong commitment to place and indeed to field work, particularly in the state of West Bengal in India. One of my favorite amongst his books has the subtitle Conversations between economists and anthropologists. I mean, that's a thing of beauty in itself. Uh, it's a wise, refreshing, and informative book uh, that really strikes at the heart of what we're trying to do in the interdisciplinary field of development studies. Now, tonight, Pranab's not going to be talking to us directly about those conversations, but I'm pretty sure that his willingness to work on the borders between economics, social anthropology, and political science will be somewhere to the fore, I think it's mainly tomorrow, the latter two, political science and anthropology, in two lectures that he's giving, two stickered, destined-supported public lectures that are being given here tonight and tomorrow, same place, same time, different chair, uh, Lord Nick Stern. Uh, these lectures take their title from Pranab's new book on awakening giants' feet of clay, assessing the economic rise of China and India, brand new copies of which I'm sure you'll be pleased to sign in the atrium outside afterwards. 
Find out it's a great pleasure to have you with us here at the LSE. very much, Stuart, for those over-generous remarks. Thanks also to Destin and Stickert for sponsoring these lectures. And uh, thank you all for coming. It's, it's late in the day. Um, what I'm going to first tell you is essentially a qualifying remark. What these lectures are not about. Usually, much of the focus of Western media is on how the rise of these two large countries in the world economy, China and India, what it means for the rest of the world. That is not the focus of my lecture. My focus is on what's happening to the lives of people inside those two countries and under what structural constraints. And these two countries contain almost 40% uh, of the world population. So what happens to the lives of these uh, people is important. The other thing I should tell you how I'm dividing the two lectures. Today's lecture will be a lot of economic facts at least the, uh, some economic facts, uh, will be some analysis, but tell you some of the broad aggregated fact, facts that are involved in any comparative economic assessment of the two countries. Tomorrow's lectures in, will be quite different. Tomorrow's lectures will be more into political sociology and political economy. The other thing I should mention, by the way, I have only PDF, not PowerPoint, not snappy bullet points, uh, crisp snappy bullet points, but um, mainly I will go back and forth sometimes, line by line, so that's why I've kept it in this form. Uh, in general, since the time is short, I'm going to talk about things very cursorily. Uh, if I may plug my book for, a, uh, uh, for half a minute, uh, obviously things are in more details. In the book, the book is short, but still uh, you'll find some more details in the book. Some issues which I'm not going to cover at all are in the book. But the book, even though written by an economist like me, is mainly meant for a general readership. All right. Um, so. The media, of course, particularly the financial press, have been all agog over the rise of China and India in the international economy, and particularly in the last couple of years, how these two countries have uh, done relatively well in the global recession. I should, however, before I go any further, I should tell you, as I go along citing some economic facts, you will notice a particular pattern. Uh, not always, but quite often, I'm going to essentially contest some of the standard statements about these two countries. Uh, some of these standard statements I believe in, some of the others I don't, and 
And I noticed that these statements, by the constant repetition, have now become part of conventional wisdom. And, and that's what I'm going to contest. So I'm, I'm going to point out some of them. So let me start with economic growth and its composition. Obviously, after a long period of relative stagnation, these countries are now growing relatively fast. Um, and uh, in this, before I go, go any farther, let me, the only historical table I have, I'm going to confine myself largely to the last three decades, particularly the last quarter century. But this first chart is, um, is historical. The data are from the writings of Angus Madison, who some of you know uh, passed away only about 10 days back. So Angus Madison historical data, the first, if I may. So this is proportion of world income at market prices, world GDP. And the colors here, 33% in 1820, 33% of world income was contributed by China. India's contribution was 16. So the two together was almost half of world income. Contrast that, this tiny blue, pale blue, that's the United States. This is yellow is Japan. And the top one is, uh, is four big economies of Europe. So that is 1820. Jump to 1950. These two large countries, China and India, in 1950, together contributed 9% of world income, from 49% to 9% of world income. You might say that in between these two dates, 1820 and 1950, lots of things happened, particularly rather unpleasant encounters with international powers both countries had. And of course, the United States by that time is 27% of world income, 1950. Jump to 2001, the two countries together is 17% of world income, United States 21%, and this is uh, Japan. And then now, the only other thing I'm going to point to is the projection. Projections are usually crude, uh, projecting current rates of growth, etc. 2025. 2025, the two countries together will have 36%, give or take. And the United States will be 18%. So, in one century, between 80, uh, sorry, in uh, two centuries, between 1820 and 2025, what will happen? Two countries, about half of world income, will have about one third of world income. That's the big change. So it's a partial restoration, not obviously a full restoration that we are talking about. That's the awakening giants part. Let me talk about now the individual two countries. In per capita income, those of you who are not economists may not be familiar with what PPP means. It's purchasing power parity. Essentially, the idea is to make prices compare. We can compare countries because the prices are different. 
So this is one way of making them comparable. So in per capita income, India was ahead of China in the 1870s and in the 1970s. But since then, China has surged way ahead. India's per capita income growth rate is about half 4%, uh, which is half of China's per capita income growth rate in the last two decades, last quarter century. There are reasons to believe that the Chinese rates of growth are somewhat overstated. There are some built-in incentives to over-report Chinese income by the local officials. There are also problems with the price deflator used, etc., etc. But even discounting for the overstatement in the Chinese official rates of growth, there's no question that the Chinese rate of growth has been much faster. This chart will give you some uh, idea of the sectoral composition. So the first two is in the period 1978 to 93. The second period is 93 to 2004. So this large chunk, the maroon colored or whatever color you call it, that's manufacturing in China. The part of growth which is contributed by manufacturing, this is agriculture, this is service, services. And this top part is actually the increase in growth because of people move from a low, low productivity sector to the high productivity sector. It's called the reallocation effect. So that's in China in the period 93-2004. Corresponding, you can see India's manufacturing com contribution to growth much, much smaller than China. Relatively speaking, India's service sector has done well. I'll come back to this. China is now widely regarded as the manufacturing workshop of the world. But I think I want to qualify this a little bit. Um, when you say manufacturing workshop of the world, you usually mean manufacturing output. But for countries like China and India, what is important is that much of this output is really assembling and processing materials. But if you take value added, namely deducting the cost of materials and components, then the Chinese, Chinese share in the world manufacturing value added is not the largest. The largest is the United States, 25%, Europe, 20%, Japan, Japan and China, in 2009 is about 15%. But it is, of course, a very large change. Similarly, if you take rate of growth of value added, Chinese rate of growth has been extremely high, but it's not historically unparalleled. Even in recent, say, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, the rate of growth uh, of value added, manufacturing value added, has been higher in Taiwan and in South Korea than in China, but the China has been reasonably high. I have here the chart for rate of growth for four Asian countries. This is rate of growth in the first 25 years of growth spark. So in, um, in Korea in 65, uh, Taiwan in 1960, and so on. The, this is Korea. This is Taiwan, this is China, and this is Japan. Let me move on. Another conventional statement about China, Chinese growth is that it's export-led. One should qualify that. Yes, exports 
played a very important role in the Chinese growth and foreign direct investment, that's FDI. While these made important contribution, particularly in technological and managerial upgrading of the enterprises, they have not been the main driver of economic growth. Their direct net impact, FDI, foreign direct investment and export, net direct impact has been quantitatively modest in terms of GDP growth compared to that of domestic investment, particularly investment and domestic consumption. There is some evidence for this. Even at the height of the recent global expansion of trade in the period 2002 to 7, the increase in net exports contributed only about 15% of total real GDP growth in the period. Again, usual figures of exports are output, not value added. But for income, you really need the rates of growth of value added. Because many of, of Chinese exports are processing materials and components from uh, that lot of assembly. Similarly, I want, I want to qualify a usual statement about Indian growth. Just as Chinese growth has been manufactured center, Indian growth is called is the service sector-led growth. And immediately you think about the uh, widely known success of India in software and IT-enabled services. But the, one, needs to have, uh, one needs to have some qualifying statement here as well. Yes, some of the subsectors in the service sector, like finance, business services, or telecommunication, where economic reform may have made a difference, did grow fast. But how much do they contribute, even to the service sector output? If you take this high growth finance, business services, including all the software and IT-enabled services, and telecommunication, if you add them together, they contribute about a quarter of the total service sector output in India. It's, a, it's, it's not the majority of the service sector in India. In fact, be, you may be surprised to know that about 60% of the total service sector output in India, even today, is in the informal sector, tiny, tiny enterprises. Quite often below the policy radar, unlikely to have been directly influenced by uh, the economic reform, the trade policy changes, or, um, uh, or the, or the uh, licensing policy changes. Of course, informal sector is also indirectly affected because the formal sector uh, draws output, draws, uh, derives supplies, uses some informal sector firms as their suppliers. There are not good estimates on that. What is the importance of the linkage between the formal and informal sector in India? Uh, at most, people say it'd be about 25 to 30%. There's a huge informal sector which is untouched by this growth in this fast-growing service sector, subsectors. In fact, and this is a big contrast with India, the informal sector in India is so large most people don't realize this, how large it is. So let me give you a striking number. So you hear about software all the time. Indians doing well in software. 
take all the IT related activities, even low tech activities like, uh, like call centers and so on. So any, all the IT enabled services, add them up, what proportion of the total Indian labor force is employed by all the IT enabled services? Less than one half of one percent of the labor for Indian labor force is employed in all IT enabled. So this is a sector which is doing very well but cannot transform the economy, at least not in the foreseeable near future. However, the informal sector is changing, particularly I think the mobile phone is playing a very important role. Let me now go into poverty and inequality. So that you see a panel there. I'm using the World Bank $1 a day per capita measure. It's an extremely crude measure. The prices are 2005 prices. The reason I'm, I'm using them is that, that this is widely used and this also makes you, enables you to compare two countries. Um, otherwise, in my book actually I talk about other data, for example, the Indian Planning Commission data and similarly Chinese official data, you basically get the same result, even though the World Bank data makes it easier to compare. So the, if you look at the, the first panel, the top panel is about percentage of population below that very crude poverty line of $1 a day per capita. And the second panel is about the number of people in millions. I want to just mention three, three striking things from these two panels. Number one, China in 1981, percentage of population below this $1 poverty line 73.5. I personally believe that number is a little overestimate, but let me, let me ignore that. So from 73.5% in 1981, in 2005, it's in single digit. This is a dramatic change in reduction in poverty. India also had a significant decline, but you can see it's not as dramatic. That's the first point I want to make. Second point, similarly, go down to the second panel. Just compare 81 in China with 2005. 624 million people have been lifted above that poverty line. Never before in history, this kind of numbers of people have been lifted above the poverty line in such a short period. That's a historically unparalleled fact. Number three. The first two st statements that I made, I think, are widely accepted now. Number three, I will now contest a widely accepted statement, and that is the following. So go back to this fa second fact, where 624 million people were raised above the poverty line between 81 and 2005. If you read the financial press, including the most well-known uh, financial media in this country, like, say, Financial Times, Economist Magazine, etc., etc., we'll often see a statement like this. It is globalization which big, made these big changes in China and India, particularly China, because China was much more globally integrated, and that brought about a large rise, a large reduction in poverty. 
and I'm going to contest that statement, uh, at least in its entirety. Uh, it's, not whole, it's not wholly true. So if you look at these numbers, of the 624 million people raised thus, of these, more than half were raised between 1981 and 87. China's integration into the global economy happened mostly in the 90s, particularly after the admission into the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in 2001. So what happened in the 80s? It's entirely domestic. It's not very little to do with the global integration. What happened in the early 80s is what I'd call a big land reform. In fact, one of history's most egalitarian <coughs> land reforms. Cultivation rights were distributed in an equal fashion. Almost every family got, rural family, got an equal amount of la uh, land subject to two qualifications, subject to the regional average and subject to the demographic size of the family. Subject to that, it's a highly egalitarian redistribution of land. So what it did, it provided a floor to the income of the poor people in the villages. And that is a big change. And that, th there are other reasons also. I think the procurement price for grains was raised in this period, etc. But very little to do with globalization. So more than half of the people raised above the poverty line were raised in the early 1980s. Uh, the globalization did play a role later, particularly through labor-intensive industri industrialization, which gave jobs to a lot of people, which reduced poverty. No doubt, I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But I'm saying a very large part of the reduction in poverty has very little to do with globalization. If you now go to non-income indicators of poverty, the Indian story is dismal. Life expectation at birth now in India is it what used to be in China in the early 1970s, long before economic reform at the end of the 1970s. Indicators of child malnutrition and mortality much worse in India. For example, in the 0 to 3 age group, 46% of Indian children are underweight. Corresponding percentage in China is 8%. And this number is much worse in India than in Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan African average is about 30%. Below five child mortality per thousand, 94 in India, 41 in China. Of course, in China also, recently went through, in the last uh, 33 decades, went through a decline of rural health services after decollectivization. And recentralization of public finance in 1994, which left unfunded mandates for social services with local governments, particularly in the interior provinces. China essentially moved from one of the most impressive basic public health coverage systems to an effectively privatized or user charge finance system, particularly in rural areas. I've seen survey evidence in which a very large percentage of people who fall sick do not go to the hospital or even the public hospital because the fees charged they cannot afford. Let me now talk about income inequality. Now economists use a very crude measure of income inequality which is the Gini coefficient. For non-economists let me just say the values of this coefficient varies from 0 to 1, 
If it's near one, it's extremely high inequality. If it's near zero, it's very low inequality. The standard story is that the China is now an extremely unequal country. China's inequality certainly has gone up. But here too, I would, I would contest a standard statement often made. Well, first of all, the Chinese, China's inequality figures that I've given here, 0 0.29 in 90 to 0 0.39 in 2004, you will see these figures are lower than most of the cited figures because these figures that I've cited here correct for price differences between rural and urban areas, which the standard figures don't. But the more important uh, thing to note is that quite often you will see statements like it is globalization which has raised inequality. Again, I'd like to qualify that statement. If it were globalization which raised inequality in China, then you would expect inequality to rise much more in the coastal areas of China, which are much more globally exposed than in the extreme interior provinces. What has happened is the opposite. Inequality has gone up much more in the interior provinces than in the coastal provinces. So it cannot be just due to uh, globalization. There are many other factors involved. Let me just mention one, one very simple thing. As an economy moves from agriculture to industry, and China has made that movement very fast, the industrial sector is more, usually in all countries, more unequal than agricultural sector. I shouldn't say all countries. Latin America is part partial expansion, uh, uh, exception. But in Asia, certainly, you, as you, the industrial sector is the more unequal sector. Uh, the agriculture sector is the more equal sector. So simply by this change from agriculture to industry and changing in a very fast way, as in China, inequality will go up. It has very little to do with globalization as such. But there are other reasons. And I'm not saying globalization does not increase inequality. I'm just saying that may not be the only or the major reason. Unfortunately, India does not have comparable time series data on income inequality. In fact, quite often, and this also I notice all the time, um, I've seen this um, in Financial Times, Economist, etc., showing that Indian inequality is lower than China's. Not true, because the usual inequality figures of India that you get are not income inequality data. Uh, they are consumption expenditure inequality data, because that's the data National Sample Survey in India collect. Consumption inequality in most countries is lower than income inequality for the simple reason other part of income is saving and the rich save more. Um, so they're not comparable. Now once in a while you do get Indian data with a, from a different organization, National Council of Applied Economic Research, NCAER, and the latest one that I could get hold of is 2004-5 and the Gini coefficient is 0.535, not merely higher than China, much more, much higher than China. So the standard statement about Indian inequality lower is not true. Let me also now say something about urban-rural disparity, which is much higher in China than India. Um, while that is true, these other statement that people make usually also need to be qualified. Statement usually say, is this rural-urban disparity that's a major cause of rural unrest in China? 
And you must have heard about these thousands of incidents of mass protest that China had in recent years. A lot of people link that with the urban-rural disparity. There's, there's, there's some reasons for doubting that proposition. Let me refer you to a study by Harvard sociologist Martin White. And their survey, household survey, suggests that inequality per se does not generate much discontent in rural China. This is not unexpected in this fast-growing economy when, yes, the urban sector is growing faster, but even in rural areas, if you take the bottom quintile, the bottom 20%, their, even their income is growing at 3.4% per annum, which is a very high rate compared to India's. India's bottom quintile, their expenditure is growing at 0.85%, much lower. So income, when income is growing fast, even for the relatively low income people, uh, the the discontent is therefore somewhat less. Also, the Chinese rural people may perceive more opportunities opening up with a relaxation of restrictions on mobility from villages. The Huko system, which used to restrict the uh, mobility, is now gradually, very much too slowly though, is being taken out in many areas. An improvement in roads and transportation. What does cause the unrest, what inflame the passions of people in rural areas are arbitrary land seizures, land acquisition, and toxic pollution. India also had some flashpoints of peasant unrest and violence over land acquisition, even though the Indian acquisition so far has been on a much, much smaller scale than in China. The estimate that I've seen, Chinese official estimate, the number of peasants displaced because their land were taken away was about 70 million farmers in, in, in uh, I forget the date, I think around 2007, by 2007. The other thing I want to talk about inequality is that what is more important than inequality of income is inequality of opportunity. Philosophers usually make a distinction, particularly because you and I may have the same opportunity, but, but I am lazy, you are not. I am more ambitious, you are not. Then our incomes will be different, even though the opportunities are the same. So the important thing to, to really worry about is inequality of opportunity. Now in these two countries, we don't have good measures of inequality of opportunity, but in these two countries, inequality of opportunity is largely uh, composed of inequality of land, inequality of um, education, and other social inequalities. And I'm going to talk particularly of gender inequality. But social inequality also includes social stratification. I'm going to ignore that because we don't have good measures, but everybody will recognize that social stratification is much more in India than in China. China has also some ethnic problems, but inequality across so social groups is likely to be much more, even though uh, ethnic inequality, say, in China, among particularly if you include the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, uh, there you will see social inequality of some kind, but nothing comparable to India's. So I'm going to ignore that, particularly because we don't have measures. So I'm going to talk about land, education, and gender. So in order to 
save time. I have lots of tables, but I'm just going, going to give you the summary. Land inequality, we have measures both for China and India, the latest measure that I could get hold of for both countries, 2002. Uh, China's is much lower than India's. If you want to know the Gini coefficient, it's more like India is 0.62, China's is more like 0.49. The main reason why India's land inequality is so much higher is because a very large number of people are landless or near landless. Whereas China, because of that egalitarian redistribution of land, until the recent land acquisition, most people had some land in rural areas. What about education? This is something that most people don't know. India's educational inequality is one of, is not really worse than China's, it's one of the worst in the whole world. How do you measure educational inequality very crudely? So one way, one very crude measurement is like, so all of us have some years of schooling. So you measure that. It's like when you do land inequality, you say how much land you have. Similarly, say how many years of schooling each of us had. And then you do a Gini coefficient. And that has been done. So let, let me give you the numbers. Chinese Gini coefficient of educational inequality in that crude sense is 0 0.37. Take a Latin American country which is notorious for high inequality, Brazil. What is the Gini coefficient of education inequality there? 0 0.39. What is the Indian inequality? 0 0.56. I mean nowhere near. Again, the main reason is, just in the land case, large number of people in India are landless or near landless. In India, large number of people are illiterate or semi-illiterate. So that drives up the inequality. In fact, the striking fact, of course, because of historical legacy, many old people are illiterate in both countries. But the important thing is even in the young people, Take the age group 16 to 24. In India, even to this day, about a quarter of, the, of that population, about one-fourth of that population in India is illiterate. In China, almost zero. So that makes a big difference in the educational inequality. So let me skip uh, all this. I had some tables, etc. Uh, just Let me now go to gender inequality. There the comparison is more complicated. In some sense, gender inequality is much worse in China. Simple numbers. So male to female ratio in children below five years. In China, it's 122 boys for 100 girls. In India, the corresponding number is 109 boys for 100 girls. That's the Indian average. There are, of course, regional differences. Northwest India, the, the numbers are much higher. The number of boys is much higher. So in 2005, there were 32 million more boys than girls under age 20 in China. This is already, this is going to be a big problem in China in the coming years. But already, I've seen a statistical, very carefully done statistical study which shows that if you control for all different other factors, this fact alone 
the gender imbalance alone is a major cause of the rising crime rates in China. In fact, I think if I remember right, in the statistical study, one-seventh of the total number of crimes, increasing crimes, is due to gender, can be due to reasons related to gender imbalance. Let me show you a map, the two countries together. This is the, again the sex ratio, the gender imbalance ratio. So the darker is the color, the, the more imbalanced <coughs> is the gender ratio. So you can see China, vast territories in central and southeast China is extremely gender imbalanced. More than 120 boys per 100 girls. Equal amount of dark shade you see in India only in a very small part. And this is the provinces of Punjab and Haryana. So in this sense, gender inequality is worse in China than in India. But in another sense, gender inequality is worse in India than in China. If you look at female literacy, it's much better in China than in India. If you look at female participation in the labor force, much worse in India than in China. I've given you numbers. If you just take urban China, above 70% of women are part of the labor force. The corresponding number in urban India is only 24%. So in, that, in this sense, women in China have had the opportunity to contribute to economic growth much more than in India. In this context, a lot of people talk about the demographic dividend that India is going to enjoy. What they mean is that if you look at the population, the composition of the population, the part of the population who are workers and part of the population who are dependents, dependents meaning children, old people, etc. So why is it important economically? Economically, it's important because the dependents uh, do, not, do not save. So it has to something to do with the saving rate. They dis-save. And the other impo more important thing is that they're not as productive. So contribution to productivity is more for the younger people. So countries with younger population, therefore from both from the saving point of view and from the productivity point of view, have a, a bonus. So many people say this is going to be a big advantage for India particularly because the working age proportion of the population will peak uh, in China, I think around 2013, very soon. The corresponding peak in India will take place 2035 or so. And that is largely, uh, not just the only reason, that is largely caused by this drastic one-child policy. It's a consequence of the drastic one-child policy uh, in China. Having said that, let me qualify this. While this is generally true, much of this younger population, high growth population, is in states in India, northern states, which are less successful economically and less well governed. So I have doubts how well, yes, young people contribute to productivity and with their income, from their income they save more. But how good jobs they will, how much good jobs they will have, that will be a problem, particularly in the areas where most of these young people will be, or large numbers of young people will be. 
The second qualification is that while China may have a decline in the quantity of the young labor force, but it may be counteracted by the rising quality with a broader spread of education than in India. Let me now come to environment. I think that I don't have to spend much, too much time environmental damage, particularly in the form of water and air pollution. China and India have now 18 of the world's 20 most polluted cities, most of them in China. Recent reports suggest that China has already overtaken the US as the largest emitter of energy-related greenhouse gases. If you measure energy efficiency, China is somewhat worse than India. If you take emission GDP ratio, China is much worse than India. It's largely because India's industrialization rate has not yet been fast enough like China. Now, when you talk of pollution, a lot of people do not usually think about the urban particulate matters in urban air. What is often not mentioned, a very large part of the pollution in these two countries is indoor pollution. Because of the, uh, because of the smoke generated by the cooking fuel that is used, and as a result, the main sufferers are women, respiratory diseases in women. WHO, the World Health Organization, has estimated if you take air pollution both indoor and outdoor, this has been the cause of more than half a million premature deaths every year in India. And the number is even higher in China. Many of the river systems in China are now so, so toxic that the water cannot be used even for irrigation, not to speak of drinking or supporting marine life. In both countries, over-extraction of groundwater has led to serious depletion of water tables. Let me now go and give you a satellite image of the nitrogen dioxide emission levels over Asia. Of course, I don't have to give you the details. The redder it is, the worse it is. So you can see this is northeast China, compared with Korea, compared with Japan, and of course compared with India. So the Chinese uh, uh, emission levels, obviously, from fossil fuel combustion and biomass burning is much worse in China than India. I could give you a lot of details, but I don't have time. So I, in fact, I have some tables which I'm going to skip. I'm just going to skip to the overall environment performance score that it is now usually every year. It's prepared by Yale University Center for Environmental Law and Policy in collaboration with Columbia University Center by International Art Science Information Network. They give scores for different ingredients of environment, and they have an aggregated score. Let me jump only to the aggregated score. So in 2010, it's just come out in their website. In 2010, the environmental performance score for China is 49 uh, out of the maximum of 100. Uh, India is also very similar, so the ranking is also very similar, around 121 or 123 out of 163 uh, countries <coughs> they are measured for. Just for comparison, the highest score among developing countries is for Costa Rica, which is 86.4, and the lowest is for Sierra Leone, 32.1. If you look at the India, uh, uh, India and China, the ingredients, the India is much worse than China, 
in the environmental disease burden largely caused by uh, sanitation problems. Uh, on the other hand, the Chinese uh, emissions, and uh, I've already mentioned this, Chinese emissions problem and urban air, particulate matters in urban air pollution is much worse in China than in India. Whether the Chinese central government's energetic countermeasures launched in recent years will succeed in making a big dent on the problems needs to be seen. The Indian countermeasures have yet not reached the Chinese scale, but the environmental movement is more active as a watchdog in India. Notice that I've said Chinese central government. Quite often it's happening. Chinese central government is trying to reduce environment, but they have not been able to succeed. They have not succeeded in controlling the local officials who, in cahoots with the local business, do things which pollute the environment. So this is a big tussle going on quite often between the central government and local officials. Let me go on to the next issue. I see that my time is getting up, so I'm going to summarize essentially. Financial and fiscal matters. Financial sector is healthier in India than in China. The Indian private corporate sector is much more vigorous. It's, um, it's the financial sector is much more balanced in India and China. Both countries, the banking sector is largely dominated by the state and yet I would say the, 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 the financial sector is more balanced in terms of equity, banking, equity markets, banking and bond market. Saving rates are high for poor countries. Savings rates are high for both countries. 50% of GDP in China, gross saving rate, 36% in India. The reason why these poor countries are high savers, main reason is most of the people are not covered by social protection. So whenever you come into some income, you try to save for your retirement, for health, uh, health services, or education. However, while the financial sector is better in India than in China, the fiscal is worse in India than in China. The government in India has large budget deficit, which is provide, which is largely goes into paying salaries and subsidies. And this budget deficit does causes a huge problem, and that has to do with spending on infrastructure. Budget deficit causes inflation, which hurts the poor. But more than that, and, and budget deficit, corresponding budget deficit in, in China is much lower. Although some people say that the non-performing loans of state banks uh, it should be counted, which is not part of the budget deficit, should be actually be counted, which are much larger in China than in India, and very soon are going to be much larger again, the way the, the bank, uh, bank loan spree have gone on in China. But because of this infrastructure problem, uh, India's infrastructure is decrepit compared to China's. China's real dazzling difference is in, uh, is in infrastructure, which any visitor going to China and India will, will say that. The main reason why in India has not succeeded in, uh, in uh, doing much about infrastructure, they're trying. First of all, budget deficit doesn't give them enough resources public investment. You might say, why not private? The problem is political. Politicians come election time, they will announce, oh, you will get free electricity. You will get free water. What does it do to investment? 
nobody, no private sector is going to invest in something in which cost, cost recovery will be a problem. I'm, I'm simplifying this a little bit, but that is a major political problem, uh, infrastructure. Then also, there are also infrastructure management problem. Uh, for example, the municipal finance in India, just compare Shanghai and Mumbai. The municipal finance problem is highly decentralized in China, uh, highly centralized in India. So in fact, the municipal department do not have the autonomy or the money to do much about the local infrastructure. Uh, whereas in China it is. Just to give you one number, if you look at the sub-provincial level, in China about 55% of total spending is done at the sub-provincial level, below the state level. In India what's the corresponding percent? 5%. Which tells you about the little, very low level of fiscal decentralization in China, which has to do with municipal finance, which has to do with urban infrastructure. The last thing that I want to mention is about which is a major difference between China and India, is the pattern of industrialization. Again, I'm going to skip what I have. I have lots of these charts, etc. but let me just give you the summary. So one big difference in the pattern of industrialization between China and India is that Chinese success has been in labor-intensive industrialization, at least to start with. Now China is graduating into more high-tech, uh, capital-intensive, uh, industries. But Chinese success has been mostly in, uh, in, in the beginning at least, labor intensive industries. Uh, garments, um, uh, toys and uh, uh, shoes and so on. Because they are labor intensive, they employ a lot of people which reduce poverty. Success stories in India are in the skill intensive and capital intensive. Software is an example of skill intensive. Uh, pharmaceuticals, another success story of India highly skill intensive, capital intensive. Now, India is also succeeding in some vehicles and car parts, but these are also relatively capital intensive. So India has not, unlike China and Vietnam, has not gone into, uh, has not succeeded in labor intensive industrialization. This is a big controversial subject in India. Many business people and some uh, uh, some economists think it's because of the labor laws in India. In India, if you have a farm of more than 100 employees, you cannot sack anybody. And in, when you cannot sack anybody, without government permission, which is hardly given. So if you cannot sack anybody, you are careful in hiring people. So your in labor in intensity, your technique of production is capital intensive as a result. But I personally think that is, while that is a factor, it's probably the, not the most important factor. The most important factor to me is infrastructure. Electricity, just to give you an example. If you are a big company, you have your own power plant. If you are a mid-sized company, you, you have your own generator. If you are in the small sector, who are the ones who hire a lot of people, labor intensive? You depend on the power, the government provided power which is often, you know, many hours of power outage, more than power outage. Even if you're thinking about expanding your farm, hire, uh, buy an equipment, you know the equipment is going to get burnt out because of the voltage fluctuations. So it's the small people who are hurt by this lack of infrastructure, much more than others, and that is also an effect on labor-intensive industrialization. Let me end there, and before, that, before I end, let me tell you a little bit about this topics that I'm going to cover tomorrow. 
So tomorrow, so today I gave you some numbers, etc. Tomorrow it will not be mostly numbers, it will be mostly my opinions. And therefore uh, you can find them much more challengeable. Um, it will be mostly in political sociology and political economy. So I'm going to talk about primarily three topics tomorrow. First topic is the nature of capitalism. There is capitalism developing in both countries, but how does the nature of capitalism differ between the two countries? That will be my first topic. The second topic would be something that sociologists write a lot about, about the so-called developmental state, essentially about the state-business relationship, which the developmental state idea came up in the context of literature in East Asia, and Korea, Taiwan, Singapore and so on. Uh, many people think China is just another example of a developmental state and some people think India is also an example of a developmental state now. So I'm going to criticize that. I'm going to have a critical uh, appreciation of that logic. And the third topic I'm going to discuss tomorrow, and this is a big topic uh, which arises in any context of China-India comparison, is governance and accountability. So I'll start with the standard thing. Of course, India is a democracy, so India has a lot of these uh, uh, usual problems of, uh, associated with democracy. China is an authoritarian country, and the standard myth, I'll call it, and I'll show why it is a myth. Uh, standard myth is there for Chinese case show that you, in the early stages of development, you need authoritarianism. I think it's completely false, but I'll go into that. And then, in general, I'll show in spite of India's democracy, there are lots of accountability failures in India. So in fact, I'm going to go into the nature of accountability failures in both countries and what impact it has on development. Thank you. Thank you, Pranab. That was, that was excellent. Uh, I hope we've got a couple of mics somewhere. At the, yes. uh, so, questions. I think Pranav would rather take them one at a time. Yes, gentleman up front. Professor, I cannot thank you sufficiently for the tremendous empowerment exercise that has taken place this evening. And I want immediately, therefore, to thank London School of Economics for having provided us with this excellent opportunity. My question is only one, and it is this. You indicate that a major problem in the two countries is basically a lack of opportunities for members of the population of these two countries in, in terms of uh, having access to the ability to enhance their economic power. Will you please indicate what practical steps are being taken by these two countries in order to get rid of this major obstacle in the realization of development? And uh, an additional question that is, uh, okay, let, let me say a question that is related to this, is how the fact that uh, uh, the stratification element in India has been so problematic in terms of ensuring that economic development takes place, uh, thereby um, uh, uh, tackling the problem of inequality. Um, how will the Indian government deal with these 
factors that are so deeply entrenched in the Indian cultural system. Thank you very much. Those are very important questions. I don't know whether I'd have the time to go into the, all the ramifications of those questions. Um, China, of course, as I already mentioned, uh, in terms of educational opportunity, health opportunity, uh, the Chinese government in the socialist period had done a tremendous lot for the poor. And uh, India, for example, as I mentioned, in some indicators, India has not even reached there to even today. Now, the Indian government, um, I, but, and also I mentioned that in some sense, some facilities are getting worse for the poor in China, but nothing compared to India. India is really, a, as I mentioned, the non-income indicators of poverty and educational opportunity, um, and I didn't talk about health, uh, because we don't have measures of uh, inequality of health opportunity, much worse in India. Now, this is also related to your second uh, issue of social certification. These inequalities that are figures that I gave you is for the whole country, but then if you take the group-wise, uh, you see some of the dis really dismal picture um, is, is particularly for the, uh, the highly disadvantaged groups. Um, now, to be fair, one should say China is a much more homogeneous country. India is one of the world's most heterogeneous country. So, one should, one should try to control a little bit for social heterogeneity, but controlling for that, even there, I would say that uh, the, the, the India's, India has not done uh, nowhere near enough. I think the Indian government and the Indian, uh, Indian uh, public um, uh, discussion is quite well informed of that. So they are always trying to do things. Yes, there are a lot of measures that the Indian government has take for, taken, for example, in, in very recently, Indian government public, um, uh, had the uh, new legislation, right to education. Everybody has the right to education. But there's one thing to have a legislator right. Another thing is to implement. And the problem with implementation are several fold. One has to do with finance, not enough finance. Again, it has to do with the budget deficit a little bit. But finance, in education and health, finance is not the major problem. Finance is one problem, but not the major problem. It's the delivery infrastructure. It's very, it's very bad. Um, as uh, some of you know, that there have been studies of uh, teacher absenteeism in schools. This, by the way, is also true in Africa. Um, there are studies in Uganda, studies in India, etc., and different states in India. So on a given day, you, you unannounced arrive in a school, you will find half the time the teacher is not either not there or not teaching. Now this is because, uh, and I'm going to talk about it tomorrow, because ultimately because it's an accountability failure. Because if the teacher does not come to school, his or her salary is not affected, because the salary comes from above. The local people who suffer from it don't control the salary. So I'll give you an example. In one state, a small state in northeast in India, Nagaland, so they have the same problem of teacher absenteeism in schools. By the way, what I'm talking about teacher absenteeism, same thing is true for doctors and nurses in public health clinics. So in Nagaland, what they did, they linked a tiny percentage of the salary of the teacher, I think if I remember right, it's 5% of the salary to, to the 5% of the salary will be decided by the local government, the village government. Immediately huge improvement in, in, in participation in school by teachers. 
But it's not just teacher absenteeism is, um, either. There are a lot of uh, issues here, and this must be true of many other poor countries. Quite often, the parents themselves, don't, even if they want to, they cannot afford to send their children to school because then you give up the, the children's income. So there is a lot of child labor, which child labor is illegal in India, but still there is a lot of child labor. So now, not, they are not going to school will be legal because now it's a, the new law. But one thing is legality, the other thing is uh, what happens in actual reality. So I think there many things are being started. For example, there are now all kinds of scholarships. So if you go to school, you will get scholarships. There are, for example, some scholarships for girls. If they go and do certain grades, up to certain grades, pass those, then they will get a scholarship, etc. So there are lots of measures that are being taken. I, I think over time it will, it will improve, but it takes a, a, a lot of effort, not just financial, raising money, it's organizational effort. And that in, uh, is part of the accountability failure that I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Quite a few hands now. Uh, if we go over that side, please, uh, and then we'll come back. Could you just say who you are as well, that would be great. Sure, I'm Shanti Kellam and I'm in the Department of Management here. I was wondering if you could comment on the effect that the labor laws of China and India have had on its economic growth over the past 20 years or so? If I may plug my book, there is a section in, in my book <laughs> on this. But let me very quickly tell you, uh, labor laws are probably in India among the most stringent among developing countries. As I mentioned, if you have more than 100 employees, then you cannot sack anybody without government permission, which will not be given. Uh, China, of course, labor laws have been much more uh, uh, relaxed. And China, for example, they have trade unions, but trade unions have no say in most of the things that they matter in labor, labor rights. For example, in China, workers usually cannot strike. However, January 2008, from January 2008, there's a new labor law which have given some rights to long-term workers, but nothing compared to the rights that the Indian laborers have. But having said that, one should take the reason why I think that is not the major problem in India. It is a problem, but it's not the major problem, is that labor laws in India are central laws, but their implementation is in the hands of the states. So some states look the other way when the labor laws are violated. So for example, uh, well, let, let me not name particular states, but I know there are some states which labor laws are openly violated. Uh, similarly, there are many ways in which uh, you can evade labor laws. So you cannot sack anybody, okay? So suppose you want to st stop one part of your company, one plant of your company, what do you do? You don't pay your electricity bill, so they will cut off the connection. So what can you do? I cannot employ these people. My electricity is not there. So there are all kinds of techniques in which you can evade this. But having said that, let me say that since we are comparing with China, there's no comparison. Labor, Indian labor laws are stringent. And the people whom these labor laws hurt are the poor people. Because as I already said, the overwhelming majority of workers in India are in the informal sector. Quite often, they're banging at the gates of these factories to get in. Only a lucky few get in. And once you get in, you are covered by the labor laws. The rest, it's, so it's a, it's a small island in a vast ocean of informal 
uh, poverty. And China, of course, as I said, the labor laws are much weaker, and, and therefore, I would say to the extent labor laws affect uh, economic growth, I'm not saying this is the major reason, but it is an important reason uh, China's growth has, has benefited more from this. There were two here, but yes, yeah. over front. A lot of hands now. Um, if India did uh, make a move to amend their labor laws, so that uh, it could be more sort of uh, labor-intensive uh, industry. Would it be able to compete with China now that China's already gone down that road? And what market are you competing for? If China's already soaked up the market for lots of manufacturing, where do all those goods go that India would be producing? Well, this presumes the labor law is the major constraint. As I said, to me, electricity is a much more important constraint of labor-intensive industrialization, as I mentioned. Um, so I think even if labor laws go tomorrow, which is unlikely, um, uh, problems, unless problems of electricity, etc., solved, India will find it difficult to compete. And the competition increasingly will not be with China. Because China is gradually moving away from the highly labor-intensive products. Uh, so the competition will be with poorer countries, with Vietnam, uh, with Indonesia, with even Bangladesh. Bangladesh is doing reasonably well in garments. Bangladesh does not have labor laws, uh, or at least not the kind that, um, that uh, India has. Uh, so the, it's not really competition with China, it will be with these other countries. But in my judgment, it is these other things, like infrastructure, one factor that I did not mention is credit. The small producers need credit. Small producers need marketing facilities. So until those are, uh, those happen, in the case of China, I think I, I might take this opportunity to mention, which I did not have time to mention, one of the big things Chinese, um, uh, uh, Chinese manufacturers had an advantage is that the overseas Chinese, particularly uh, Taiwan, from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and so on, they provided the retail network for the manufacturing sellers because originally they were the ones who were selling these labor-intensive products but then gradually they were outcompeted. so then they went to China and started producing inside China those but they have retained the marketing network India lacks that, might have, that kind of marketing network which the Chinese, in Chinese mainland China inherited from this Chinese trader uh, network so these are all advantages which is not India will not immediately have, even if labor laws go. Let's try and go further back. Yeah. Jessica, is that you? Yeah. Yeah. Just further back. Another three rows and then four in. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, how much, if anything, can you contribute to India's leg uh, colonial legacy in terms of the lagging literacy rates and other HDI? Sorry, I, I missed the first okay. term. How much, if anything, can you contribute to India's colonial legacy in terms of the lagging literacy rates and the other lagging HDI indicators? Right. Um, well, there are other countries with colonial legacy did much better. Um, uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in literacy, um, I mean, China was not a colony, but but Korea was a colony of Japan. Um, Korea is a highly literate country, um, so it is. It, 
it is a puzzle why uh, I mean in India's this is part of extreme inequality India's large number of bright scientists and engineers some of them win Nobel prizes and India is also the world's largest illiterate country if you ask me I think um, it is part of elite politics that they did not give education or spreading education that as important so I would not blame yes of course when when um, uh, when the British left India, India the education um, was uh, was atrocious education level health level when the British left India the the life expectation at birth was more in the th like 30 something 32 years or something and now it's uh, 64 65 years so the big change has taken place but I think not enough now there the social groups matter. Some social groups done much better than others. The two social groups which have done very badly in terms of both education and health in India are the tribals um, and, the, and, the, and some sections of the Muslims. In terms of social groups, in terms of education and health, these are the two groups that have done worse. Worst. Then you know, others, there are other disadvantaged social groups who have not done so well. Now, here, and this is something that I might mention tomorrow, to me this is also something that is related to the political culture. So, education, the, your children are illiterate and your children die by thousands, and yet these are not electoral issues. In India, the poor are assertive participants in elections. Yet, they don't throw out a, usually, there are exceptions, throw out of power a politician who did nothing for doing something about your children's dying off or your children's not having education. So, I, yes, the, the colonial legacy is a big issue many of us have suffered from, but one way to see this would be different parts of India. Why is it South India did much better? South India was under the same British colony. Now some of it were not quite direct British colony. Kerala, the, the part that you often hear about, was mostly not part of British, British India. It was part of a, uh, a princely, uh, it was part of a princely state. But there are other parts. Tamil Nadu is an example. South India, which is largely part of colonial uh, India had done quite well, except for Kerala, has done quite well in education and in health. So it is, yes, the colonial legacy is a, com is a common factor, and yet within that common factor, different parts of India have done different, completely different. And that's where today we have to search for those, um, and that's where the governance issue comes, comes in, and that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Take you and then we'll go up to uh, just say who you are. Sure. James Irving, Visiting Fellow, Law Department at the LSE. Uh, you mentioned uh, one of, obviously one of the major distinctions between China and India are the systems of government. And you mentioned one way in which the Chinese system of government may be an advantage to China with regard to the provision of infrastructure. Do you consider that the Indian system of government is more representative? And, and whether or not it is, do you think there might be advantages in terms of development to the Indian system, given that obviously the Chinese system has some Can advantages. I postpone that question for tomorrow? Because that's precisely what I'm going to go into. 
in the third topic, which is governance and accountability. Just, yeah, go. Um, you already addressed the, uh, the thing I was going to ask uh, in the last answer. So, so each province in, in China to, and India. Uh, no, so each, each province in China and India is actually larger than some of the European or most of the European countries. So there's a big variation uh, within the country, actually. So um, uh, in terms of the spatial dimension, uh, how different is the, the variation within uh, the indicators you just presented, uh, which are just averages? Uh, yeah. if you compare these countries. Is there right. a larger variation in China or India? Right. Uh, I did not time, uh, my book has a, something to it, but uh, I, I didn't have time to go here. If you take it across province inequality, is much higher in China than in India. Uh, in other words, compare the GDP per capita in the different provinces and work out the Gini coefficient, a coefficient of variation, uh, is much higher in China than in India. On the other hand, I would say that probably uh, it is not increasing in China because of the big infrastructural investment in the Western, what is it called, Western program or something. So the infrastructure changes are coming in the West uh, in a big way. So over time, this will change in China. India, the opposite is happening. Um, in the, the, the most backward states, in, in, in China it's east and west, the difference. In, in China, uh, in India, it's coastal versus central. So within central India, um, there are four or five states which are backward. And so there, you don't see a corresponding change, except possibly the state of Rajasthan or the other states uh, the so far have not shown much change. And, and there, again, if I go back to the issue of infrastructure, so in India, for example, the government is highly sensitive to redistributive transfers to different states. So there is a whole constitution-mandated commission called the Finance Commission, which gives money, of the, which, which allocates money from the central government to the backward states. So there's, it's a redistributive transfer. But you see, if you look at these redistributive transfers, most of the transfers go into paying salaries and subsidies, rather than correcting the infrastructural deficit of these backward states. So in the long run, changes are not happening as much, um, with some exceptions. This is, a, this is I expect, say, over the next 10 years, the Chinese interprovincial, interregional inequality to decline, even though absolutely they are higher than India now, and India's probably will increase. Yes. Okay, put the other way around since the mic's come to you first. Thank you. Then just pass it back two rows afterwards, please. Uh, it's, it seems to me that uh, in, your, in your entire lecture you pinpointed on two particular areas uh, in which China has done better than India. And first one of them is land reform, and the second one is manufacturing. Now, when we compare India and China on land reform, it seems that there is no comparison. But then there is a question, larger question, related to this, that is land reform doable in India? And when I say doable, there's a political aspect to it, and there, then there is an ecological aspect to it. 
do we have enough land actually to distribute on this massive scale, one? And is it also enough to distribute land and leave it at that? Because then there are issues of irrigation, in which I think uh, probably India does not have much space to negotiate. Now, on the, on the issue of how much land, yes, India has, um, if you distribute it equally, with tiny pieces. But remember, China's density of population even more. So the average size of land today in China is much lower. Partly because land is more unequally distributed, but it's not just that. The density of population is much higher in China than in, than in India. So Chinese case shows that even at the tiny pieces of land, you can do certain things. But I, I, I agree with your basic thrust. There are limits. How much more? Because the problem in, in India, for example, the inheritance laws are such that every generation, it will be parceled even more. Your tiny piece of land will be distributed among four people. So it will be even tinier next generation. So it's not a long-term solution. Um, so what are the long-term solutions about? You need land reform, but land reform is necessary but not sufficient. And that is to do with what else do you need for uh, agriculture? Land is only one major input. You need credit. You need marketing. And increasingly, you need certain things which you cannot do as a, as a small farmer. So you have to get together with others. What do I mean? Increasingly, the crop pattern has to go, and China is already doing that. Crop pattern has to go into high-valued crops like fruits, vegetables, dairy products. High value, these high-valued crop crops have one advantage and one disadvantage from the poor farmer's point of view. The advantage is that most of these crops are highly labor-intensive, so it will employ a lot of people. The disadvantage is most of these crops, in order to take advantage of these crops, you need capital investment in cold storage, capital investment in transport, in some cases of fruits, refrigerated transport, and things like that. These are highly capital intensive, and the poor cannot have the the money to do that. So what do you have? The solution is you need some forms of coordination and, and putting people. So farmers may cultivate in the tiny plot, but they should part, be part of a larger, maybe cooperative marketing organization, of which India is one of the one, one localized example of one of the most successful cooperative marketing. I'm talking about Amul, the cooperative dairy project of, in Gujarat. So what does it do? The milk is produced by very small people. But then they take the milk to this cooperative dairy farm, which is now is one of the world's most successful cooperative marketing farm. And then they, they use that milk to process, etc. So the solution has to lie there. Uh, I'm not suggesting collectivization. I'm suggesting cooperativization, these ancillary facilities, marketing, uh, investment in storage, and things like that. So there are, and in my book I talk, there is a cha whole chapter on agriculture, and I talk about the Chinese have not done enough, but proceeding that much faster in terms of this kind of marketing and this kind of investment in cold storage and other such uh, agricultural capital. You could just pass it back to, to your, over your other shoulder, and, just, and then we'll take the last one at the top there. Um, this is A.V. Raman from the University of Warwick. Now, a question about, I'm a sociologist, so a question about the nature of the firm which you analyzed. Uh, the, because you talked of Indian corporate 
market, Indian corporate firms being the corporate sector being strong. But what concerns me is also what pertains to management strategy and the nature of the historical nature of the ownership of the firm, which has been family owned, and how this fam this the uh, the formation of large conglomerates or large groups and how that nexus per permeates with the government and the bureaucracy which actually changes the very nature of business and uh, also government policy and corruption Sir, in India. Again tomorrow, my, my, <laughs> first, my first topic is the nature of capitalism. And I go a little bit, in fact, for both countries. And uh, another quick uh, thing before I, I we'll give to, this is just, uh, this. We'll have to let the gentleman at the back ask the last uh, question. Okay. Come tomorrow. Because right, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, Alan Hooper from Birkbeck College. Um, could you just comment on the role of the um, township and village enterprises in the 1980s? Many have ascribed much of China's success to them. Um, it seems relevant to what you were saying about the importance of cooperative structures to facilitate change in rural areas, and could you say what the position of the TVEs is now? Are they still playing the role they once did, or alleged to have done anyway? Actually, uh, there's a whole chapter in my book on TVEs. <laughs> but let me very quickly tell you uh, what I think. Uh, TVE was a unique institution in which, which was owned, control rights were in the local government, so it was not private, but it was not state either. So it's a local government, local collective owned. But TV was a transitional institution with Chinese did a lot of experiments, which is one of the big things. I'm going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Big things in China is China experimented with a lot of these things. And I'm going to tell you tomorrow why there are some political blocks in India to carry out experiments of that kind. But so, so TVs were tried out in one small areas first, and then it worked, and then it spread. But it's a transitional institution. So if you really go at, the TVs are quite successful. So who are the behind this success? Quite often is local officials, local entrepreneurs. And they were, I think the, in China there is a term for it called red hat capitalists. Quite often, the, the, those who ran this, they're not technically owners of these farms, but they were capitalists for all practical purposes, but they owe a red hat so the government thought that, I mean, government, everybody thought they're part of, the, part of the government. And then in the 1990s, they took off their red hat. And they, they came out of the closet, as it were. And, and uh, so what happened uh, toward the end of the 1990s, most of the TVs got privatized in one form or another. In, many, in, in the majority of cases, the earlier manager now became the owner, bought it up and sometimes in shares with others, etc. So what started as a unique uh, transitional institution, which nobody knew what this is, neither state-owned enterprise nor private enterprise, gradually essentially has become private enterprise by and large. Um, so today there are very few. There are some, but there are very few of uh, TVEs. But I'll talk a little bit about the ownership issue tomorrow. Uh, Pranav, you told us uh Capita income growth in India in the 80s and 90s was about 4% a year. Of course, some people would say that since 2003-04, capita income growth has been close to 7-8%. I won't press you on that now, but hopefully that's a topic also that you might pick up tomorrow, whether you think India has moved to a new growth trajectory, what caused that, and what the consequences 
might be, but since we've now reached the witching hour, uh, this is the halfway point in Planab's exposition, which I thought was admirably clear tonight, and we'll get the, the more political analysis of it tomorrow. So please come back then. A couple of you can ask your questions again, but for now, thanks very much indeed.